and thank you for listening to the Life with Behavior Analysis podcast in conjunction with the ABA Task Force. I'm your host, Ms. J, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Let's dig in and do life together with behavior analysis. Thank you and welcome for tuning tuning in to the Life with Behavior Analysis podcast. We're so glad that you've tuned in today. We have a very special guest. We're going to be talking about another study that I think will really open up your eyes to some different ways of teaching our students and our our clients um, how to acquire new skills, new skills. just yeah, new skills. <laughs> and uh, we have a very special guest. I'm really excited. I think you can hear it in my voice. I'm super excited for our guest today and his research. It is called, if you're looking for the paper, a precision teaching framework for improving mathematical skills of students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my guest to uh introduce himself, give a little bit of his background, and then we're going to dive into what this amazing study is about. So if you will, Thanos, take the wheel. <laughs> Hello, Jarela. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, uh, inviting me. I, I, as I told you before, I feel really humbled uh, being an early career researcher, you know, finding myself in, in a podcast. It's one of these, you know, dreams come true type of thing. You're like, yes, someone yes. invited me. You know? <laughs> so, um, I'm Thanos, Thanos Vostanis. I am a lecturer at the Thizard Center at the University of Kent. I think you guys call it assistant professor, if I'm not mistaken. I think yes. that's the equivalent. Um, I am a qualified teacher in training. That's my background. It's in teaching. I'm a board certified behavior analyst. Um, I'm trained in the CABAS model, and I'm also trained in the Morningside model of generative, generative instruction. Nice. Um, and I'm currently in the process of uh, trying to finish my PhD, which is uh, focused on precision teaching, awesome. uh, special education. That is so awesome. So um, I'm also in a PhD program and it is, it's hard work. <laughs> it, it, it's a process, isn't it? It is. <laughs> it's definitely a long process. <laughs> a marathon, not a sprint. You know, I can give you a lot of a lot of metaphors like that. Yes. <laughs> to help us cope with the workload and the, 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 the pressure and the stress. <laughs> oh, yes. Lord, for those out there who are in PhD programs, you know the struggles all too well. But it's worth it in the end. We're going to get to that finish line eventually. So... Before we jump into the study, what is precision teaching? That's a, that's a question that I um, always get from my students and from you know colleagues. Uh, you can define it in two ways. I can okay. give you the very accurate technical definition, and I can give you the more pragmatic practical definition. So the the very you know specific technically correct definition is that it's a measurement system. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a system that helps you monitor progress and behavior change across time in the most sensitive uh, manner. Um, now, the pragmatic and more practical uh, definition is that it's a broader educational framework okay. in the sense that if you look at the history of precision teaching, mm-hmm. it incorporates good practice from other areas, for example, obviously behavior analysis, instructional design, um, mathetics, as we call them, which is a link to uh, direct instruction and um, all the relevant curricula. So 
if you if you want to look at it on a broader scale and like on the historical development of PT, mm-hmm. it's it's a subfield of ABA focused on best practice in developing skills, mm-hmm. primarily academic, but not only academic. Okay. But at its heart, it's actually a system of monitoring growth of behavior across time, using obviously the standard acceleration chart, right? That's like right. the basic, most basic prerequisite to be able to say I'm doing PT. Okay. So with using precision teaching, you said it's mainly um, academic, but it also applies to other skills as well. So what other skills would you say precision teaching is good for? Any any skills that you would like to uh, increase in frequency, in duration, in, you know, if you want to improve latency, any, any skills that a behavior analyst, a teacher, um, a, a, a sports person would target, you can mm-hmm. target through the precision teaching system. I mean, if you look at the framework, mm-hmm. um, there are different uh, versions of it, but the gist of it is that it's pinpoint the behavior, record and take the data, chart the data on the standard acceleration chart, Come to a, uh, you know, make a decision about whether you need to move on, make a change, um, troubleshoot, and then uh, depending on whether you're just going to move on or whether you need to troubleshoot, try again. So okay. it's a pinpoint record chart change try again type of thing. So if you think about it, it's basically what well, in ABA anyway. It's right. just that the way you go about it is more precise. It's more specific. It's more sensitive. Uh, in uh, uh, compared to more mainstream uh, behavior analytic approaches. Okay. So you can apply it to anything, anything, honestly. You could do daily living skills, sports-related mm-hmm. motor skills, gross fine motor, social play skills, academic skills, as you would in any ABA, um, you know, program, really. Okay. So when you're implementing precision teaching, when you're using this, what does that generally look like? For those that don't know what precision teaching looks like or using it, what does that actually look like? Well, this goes back to my point about whether we should approach the way we describe PT from a more like pragmatic historical perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So truth is that it has been linked heavily to uh, fluency, right? And frequency building activities and so on. So what you would typically see in a precision teaching framework is specific skills pinpointed, and then um, free operant arrangements. So you would get trained, you would offer uh, opportunities to your students to perform to their natural pace. You wouldn't limit them in the sense of, you know, doing only discrete trials uh, and only that type of training. So you would have free operant uh, training situations that build higher frequencies, and you would have dynamic and quick decision-making because of the standard standard acceleration chart. So it would look exactly like any ABA program out there where you do your training, your intervention, you take the data and you make decisions. The primary two differences is that you would, I suppose, have broken down the skills into more specific skills. You would offer more opportunities to train to fluency mm-hmm. and you would be a lot quicker, quicker with your decision-making in terms of, okay, is my student progressing or do I need to make a change so mm-hmm. that I don't waste any educational time? Mm-hmm. Because that's a big thing in PT. Don't waste time. Be very right. quick in your decision-making. Okay. So, okay. yeah, those are the three things that I think primarily would, you, would, you, know, you would think are different from mainstream ABA. Other okay. than that, 
it would be the same, really, because oh, it is okay. it is behavioral analysis. It yes. is behavioral analysis. Yes. Okay. So that makes sense. So before we jump really into the study, my question, I asked you this before, um, you know, when we were talking about uh, just getting you onto the podcast and doing, talking about the study, why did you choose math? Um, for those that have not read the study or just, um, again, the title is a precision teaching framework for improving mathematical skills of students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So why did you choose math um, versus, say, any other uh, skill to be taught? I, I'll tell you what, it's one of these things that, are, um, first of all, you know, disclaimer, I'm not a maths teacher, right? And I, right. And I told you before, um, the focus of my uh, research is on precision teaching. It's not right. on maths or reading. It's it's not the subject matter that I'm focusing on. Mm-hmm. It's the framework around how we develop skills. Uh, now, I chose maths because, first of all, with reading, for example, uh, I think there is a lot of literature out there. So I thought, okay, you know, let's not go somewhere that there's too much research anyway. Right, right. Um, and we wanted something that would be educationally meaningful and mm-hmm. an area that um, students with IDD struggle with, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, they don't get uh, enough opportunities to improve those skills. And it's a, it's a core it's a core area, isn't it? Like right. We call it, you know, the three R's, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Like, yep. Yeah, arithmetics, right? So yeah. it's... It's a, such a such an important skill that relates to so many other areas that mm-hmm. I think it's you know it's it's educationally criminal that we've got students who could learn to do maths who could mm-hmm. benefit and they don't. So we thought, okay, let's let's focus on that area to show teachers here in the United Kingdom that there is a better way, and these students can learn. Mm-hmm. They can learn. They but they can benefit. They can progress. So that was the rationale. But um, as I told you, you know, you could do it with anything, really. For example, right. uh, at the moment, we are uh, designing a study on uh, using precision teaching to develop uh, social skills. Nice, so, nice. You know, it's 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 not content dependent. It can be right. applied to anything, really. Right, because we, uh, for those that are listening, we talked before, obviously, the podcast, and I told him, I hate math. I can count, I can count money, I can, <laughs> I can do the very basics, but when it comes to math, I shy away because I am not good at it. So when I first read, looked at the study, this looking at the title, I was like, oh gosh, the subject matter has is precision teaching and math. I'm like, okay, I can do the precision teaching, <laughs> but the math part scares me, um, just being 100% honest. Um, but like you said, the subject matter is not the math, it's the actual, it's actually pr- the precision teaching. So in talking about uh, the framework on mathematical ability. Um, describe the study for us. Like, how um, did you put it together? How were the your participants? Uh, why did you use those particular participants? That kind of stuff. So uh, we went in a special education school in England. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, for those who are not really, um, uh, you know, knowledgeable about what's happening in England, uh, we've got obviously special education schools that use this type of eclectic approach. Well, you know, they do a bit of this, a bit of that, okay, you know, a bit of PECs, a bit of uh, zones of regulation, a bit okay. of uh, 
good uh, strategies that come from behavioral science, you know, the broader area of behavioral science and so on. So we thought, okay, we're going to go in there because what I've been seeing in my clinical experience is that there are so many kiddos with a diagnosis in those schools Mm -hmm. that could be competent performers, competent learners, and they are constantly being failed from Mm. the the educational system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're constantly let down because non-evidence-informed practices are utilized Mm -hmm. and they fall behind. So I I thought, okay, look, we've got all these kiddos there with the diagnosis that we could easily show the world here in England, you know, the educational world here in England, that mm-hmm. they can learn, they can benefit, they can be very competent performers. So we went in there, and uh, what we did is we uh, approached different uh, teachers uh, from different classrooms, and we said, are you okay for us to just go in and assess the students? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, after getting consent, ethical approval, and so on and so forth, right? Right, right, right. And they, thankfully, you know, they were all very on board, and they said, yeah, sure, you know, let's try it out, let's see what we find from this. So we went in three different classrooms and we assessed a total number of 16 students. Okay. And what we did then was we broke them into three groups. So we, uh, based on their scores on uh, some assessments that we did, for example, mm-hmm. we used the TEMA 3, Test of Early Mathematics Ability 3, which is a typical standardized norm referenced um, macro assessment for maths. Mm-hmm. And we looked at their scores and we said, okay, clearly we've got um, four students who are the most uh, you know, fluent performers out of the 16 students that we've assessed. Mm-hmm. Then we've got some students who are in between that. So, you know, they're just below that group of four students, but mm-hmm. uh, you can see that they are roughly equal in ability. Mm-hmm. And then the rest, they had what we call, uh, you know, um, Swiss cheese repertoire. So you could see that, you know, some would score, for example, a 30, some would score a 25 on the assessment tool, but then mm-hmm. you would have some kiddos that would score 8, 9, 10. Right. So we needed to find a way to group them, right? Because the mm-hmm. point was that we didn't want to do it one-to-one. We wanted to do it on a one-to-two teacher-to-student okay. ratio. Because one of the things we always find in special ed is that they will say to us, yeah, but you guys do ABA and ABA is always one-to-one, so that's a different game. Right, right. So we thought, okay, let me let us show you that actually even a one-to-two teacher-to-student ratio, mm-hmm. you can easily do it, and it's not necessarily about being one-to-one. Right. So we had the 16 students, and we've pinpointed, and we said, okay, the four best performers are going to form one group. Okay. The next four performers are going to receive the precision teaching practice. And the eight remaining students are going to be placed on a different group simply okay. because we could not group them together because their ability was really variable. So you could, right. as I said, you would have some kiddos that would score really, really low, mm-hmm. others that would score slightly above that, and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And we needed to do that type of homogeneous grouping because we needed to have that one-to-teacher-to-student ratio. So we needed to make sure that the kiddos that get the intervention are roughly of the same ability so we can deliver the same lesson, obviously. So it's relevant to all of them, right? Mm-hmm. So we did that. And we created the three groups. And then we decided and we said, okay, so the uh, group that has the eight kiddos with the varied ability... We are going to assess them at the beginning and at the end of the study. Now, the four best 
performers, mm -hmm. we are going to be assessing them once a week because okay. we want to keep track of how are they doing because they are supposed to be the best out of the 16 students that we have in our sample. Right. And the kiddos that got the precision teaching um, intervention, obviously they did their practice with us uh, on a daily basis uh, for the uh, whole duration of the study. Mm -hmm. So now what we did is we had a series of prerequisite skills that we've, we've been pointed, and then we had a primary skill, mm -hmm. uh, and that was uh, addition. And we uh, worked our way across all these skills until we reached that primary dependent variable that we were focusing on, which was uh, addition. Okay. Now, the way we did it, though, is that before we started doing anything in terms of our intervention, our baseline, we wanted to, first of all, um, to a certain extent, familiarize our students with the whole process because okay. precision teaching involves free operant training, what we call frequency building, right? Mm -hmm. It also involves graphing of performance, data collection. We had a token economy in place and so on. So we thought, okay, look, all these are really new to these kiddos because what they get in a typical eclectic model mm -hmm. is, is not necessarily that robust, that well-sequenced, you know, that coherent in a way as a right. model. Right? So we said, okay, we need to familiarize them first before we do anything. So chose four skills that were super simple, mm -hmm. things such as tacting colors, copying letters, you know, tacting... Uh, animals, things like that. Okay. And we did some timed practice with them and we got them to take their data and graph them just to get them to see what it will feel like later on when we right. do the proper maths. Mm -hmm. And that was because we wanted to remove any confounds from our baseline because of the novelty of the procedure. Right. So we wanted to make sure that it's not the novelty of the thing. You know, it's not that, oh, this mm -hmm. is completely new to me, that throws the kilos off and then their data is really low. Right. Because we wanted to have as accurate a picture as possible. So the first step was that. We did that mock timings, we call it, where we would just give them one timing a day for a few days, and we would give, you know, get them to take their data, how many corrects, how many skips, how many incorrects. Okay. Lot them on a simple graph, and then, you know, some type of sticker, pat in the back, you know, well done, well done, matey, that mm -hmm. was good work. And it would be, you know, a five-minute thing just, just to familiarize them with the whole process. Okay. And then the start, the, the, the proper part of the study started, right? Like the big part of the study mm -hmm. started. But before, before I talk about it, just to highlight that the reason we call the paper a precision teaching framework is because, as I said, precision teaching is a monitoring system. Mm -hmm. Precision teaching is making decisions about behavior change across time using the family of standard acceleration charges. Right. And we say the family because the standard acceleration charge is not one thing. You can have the daily, you can have the weekly, the monthly, or even the yearly. So you've mm -hmm. got different types of acceleration charges, right? Right. But what we did is we, we had a broader framework. So we, we took, uh, we utilized best practice from other areas that you would typically find in precision teaching interventions. So for example, we did that component composite analysis. Okay. And what we did like that is we basically decide what is the primary skill we're trying to teach. For example, in this case, as I said, it was addition, right? Mm -hmm. And then we identify prerequisite skills that are related to that. 
so that we can sequence our instruction in a way that makes sense to the kiddos, so that we start with simpler skills and gradually work our way up to more complex ones. Mm-hmm. So we had that component, that component composite analysis in our intervention, in our you know, in our packets. Right. We also had frequency building to a performance criterion. And that is something important for our listeners to discriminate. So you could do fluency training. That's what it means. Frequency building for performance criterion is basically doing fluency training. So you do that free operant type of training where you allow the kiddos to perform to the natural pace. Mm-hmm. You know, they speed as much as they can, mm-hmm. but without making it a race. It's not about making it a race. It's about natural performance, natural pace. Right. So you, you do that frequency building, which usually has a certain performance criterion set by us, hence the name frequency building. Building, right. But when you do that, that doesn't mean you're doing precision teaching. Mm-hmm. You're doing frequency building training. So you could do that fluency training, as we simply call it, and it wouldn't necessarily be precision teaching if you were not using the standard accelerations to make education, to make decisions about growth across time. Okay. Time. okay. So that's a different component, right? Now, as I said, historically, in a precision teaching framework, you would see these things all be together. Mm-hmm. But if we need to be super precise, you could do a component composite analysis. You could do frequency building to a performance criterion. And mm-hmm. you would not be doing precision teaching unless you then applied the precision teaching framework of pinpoint record chart, change, and try again using the standard acceleration chart, which was the third part of our package. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we also had um, reinforcement in there, right? So we had a token economy uh, that we uh, utilized as well, and we had a variable schedule of reinforcement, typical ABA approach in that sense. Mm -hmm. So that was the model. As I said, first we broke the students into the three groups. Mm-hmm. Then we did the mock practice, the mock timings with the group that would receive the intervention to familiarize them with the process. And then we did the baseline assessments. Mm-hmm. So now what we did for the baseline is the kiddos that received precision teaching, they got at least three days worth of baseline. Okay. And I say at least some of the skills that we introduced later we baseline them further to account for the uh, difference in the time. So because, the, you know, when we first started working on skills, we didn't work on all of them together. Some of them came on later. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to account for that period of no practice. And we wanted to make sure that our baseline is as recent as possible. Mm-hmm. So we had at least three days of baseline. But in some skills, we had more than that. Okay. So that was the PT group. Now we had the... We call them single comparison group, and these were the pre-post uh, guys. So that group was the eight kiddos that we assessed at the beginning and at the end of the study, mm-hmm. and they got one day's worth of baseline. And then we had the group of the really competent performers, the really right. strong kiddos. Mm-hmm. And these fluent uh, students, we assessed them three days. Mm-hmm. We took three days worth of baseline, and then we assessed them once a week. Okay. Because we wanted to keep track of, okay, how well are they doing um, as, uh, you know, as we are progressing throughout the year? Mm-hmm. How are they doing? Because they are supposed to be the most fluent students. So they are supposed to be the best out of the 16 students in terms of their mathematical ability. Right. So are they improving even more? 
Are mm-hmm. they stable? Are they regressing? How are they going to be doing? Right. Using that eclectic model that they are receiving in their school, you know, that treatment as usual approach, as we call it in, mm-hmm. in research. So we did the baseline. And as I said, the PT group, three days of baseline, the weekly group, also three days, and the single comparison group, they had one day of baseline. And then we introduced the uh, intervention. Okay. So now what we did is we had that uh, component composite analysis and we specified a series of prerequisite skills. So we said, okay, before they work on addition, what are some other related skills that we should help them become fluent in before they move on to that primary skill? And, you know, obviously this list could be exhaustive, right? Like, you know, you you, you could have so many skills that you could pinpoint that are related, for example, to addition. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we needed to make a decision and say, okay, we can't obviously target every single skill out there because this is research, it's not clinical practice. Right. So we made a decision and we said, okay, we are going to work on uh, five prerequisite skills before we introduce that one. So what we did is we we said, okay, first of all, let's let's get them to do some tally marks because that is both a math skill, but it's also a fine motor skill. So let's give them Mm -hmm. the opportunity to practice a bit to fluency, just drawing tally marks on a piece of paper mm-hmm. so that they, first of all, you know, start familiarizing themselves even more with the procedure, mm-hmm. but also examine whether that is a potential barrier. Because if you see a kiddo that can't write quickly, mm-hmm. and I mean like write tally marks, well, imagine how difficult it will be for them if you ask them to write numbers. That's right. So we needed to have that, you know, um, we needed to, 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 to test and check What's the writing like? Like, can they write quickly enough for us to have, you know, what expectations should we have? Right. So we had that. Then we had a discrimination activity mm-hmm. where we asked them to um, mark the numbers. So we would give them a worksheet and they would have numbers and other symbols. And we would mm-hmm. say to them, okay, find the numbers, circle them. Okay. And the symbols would be, you know, the plus sign, the smaller than, larger than mm-hmm. uh, symbol, the uh, minus symbol, division symbol, multiplication symbol, um, the euro, the sterling, the dollar symbols, you know. So we would have different symbols that you might find in maths Mm -hmm. that would not be numbers. So we said, okay, first of all, can they discriminate numbers? Right. Can they tell that, you know, oh, this is a number, this is not a number. Then we had... um, we had a skill where we got them to see and say numbers because the, the ability to say numbers quickly, we, we mm-hmm. know in our field, is really important. If, if you know, you, you ask me, for example, to do addition and I take two seconds to figure out what number I'm looking at, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be quick in my uh, addition facts. Right. So I need to be fluent in just seeing the numbers and saying, yeah, that's four, three, five, one, two, mm-hmm. zero. Mm-hmm. Right. We also did a here right uh, numbers. So I would say to them, five, three, two, four, you know, I would have a standard pace mm-hmm. and they would need to write the numbers because we wanted to give them practice across different sensory modalities right. just see and say, also hear and write the numbers. Mm-hmm. Then we practice counting and all this was from zero to 20 because we did single addition. So we okay. made sure that the sums were up to 20. So from zero plus one all mm-hmm. the way to 10 plus 10 basically. Mm-hmm. So we then got them to practice counting. So we would say to them, okay, start at zero, for example, and count all the way to 20 in writing. Mm-hmm. So it would be like, you know, they would write zero, one, two, three, four. And then we had the 
primary dependent variable, which, which was single and double digit addition, mm -hmm. uh, with facts with the sum up to 20, no more than that. So those were the skills. And just before I explain to you exactly how they did the practice on all these skills, let me tell you this. We had that group that we assessed once a week, right? Four right. students, the best out of the 16 that was the whole sample of this study. Mm -hmm. And what we did is when we did the three days of baseline with that weekly group, we took their average performance, their median, mm -hmm. we created a 10% range, you know, a mean max type of thing, minimum maximum. Mm -hmm. And we set that as the performance criterion for the kiddos that would receive precision teaching. Mm, okay. So basically what we did is we pitted students who, who we knew based on our assessments were nowhere near as competent in mathematics as those four kiddos. Right. So, and we pitted them against them. So we said, look, by the end of the study, we want you guys to be at least as good as your peers mm -hmm. that we've mm -hmm. seen in the assessments are really fluent in maths. Right. So we created that, and that was the performance criteria we set for each of the skills. Mm -hmm. And then we had the intervention. So now what we did is we would practice two skills at a time. So we had six skills in total, five prerequisite skills, and then our primary skill, which was right. the addition. Mm -hmm. And we would practice two skills at a time. And the practice would involve untimed practice. Now here, this is my point about PT being something that you can utilize across different areas and different skills and different approaches. Mm -hmm. What you do for untimed practice is up to you. Mm -hmm. So there are people who do direct instruction and what we call mathetics, you know, lead, uh, model, lead, test, retest. Type right. Of thing. Mm -hmm. Or you could do discrete trial training. You could. Yeah. Because the untimed practice is about building the accuracy. Mm -hmm. It's about building the ability to say, okay, what's a correct response? What's an incorrect response? Mm -hmm. So that's what we call the acquisition stage where I'm going in as a teacher and I'm teaching you the skill. I'm right. like, look. You don't know that 5 plus 10 equals 15, so I'm going to teach you that. Right. You don't know that when we count, we count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So I'm mm -hmm. going to go in now and I'm going to teach you that. Mm -hmm. So the way I can do that could be in a systematic way, for example, discrete trial training mm -hmm. or mathetics, again, model, lead, test, retest, or it could be in a different way. You know, there are different versions of how you could do practice like that out there. Right. Now, what we did is for our untimed practice, we didn't do anything that is ABA related. We did the things that you would find in those eclectic models. So what they would do in their school typically, which okay. is they would just, we would just use some worksheets, some mm -hmm. notebooks, and we would just give them some practice to do. So I would, for example, say to them, okay, let's do one page of this uh, worksheet that we have, for example, uh, numbers and let's practice saying them together. Okay. Or let's let's practice. I'll I'll tell you ten numbers and I want you to write them down. Okay. So are you ready? Let's do it. Now the first number is five. Right. Mm -hmm. Five. So we would not. We didn't want to make it very systematic because we wanted to show the teachers that the the untimed practice mm -hmm. would still be something that they are familiar with. Right, right. It doesn't necessarily need to become something more rigorous, more robust. Mm -hmm. Now, having said that, for obviously, you know, from a behavior analyst, I would expect them to use best practice. So I would expect to see some type of DTT mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. PI or maybe, you know, copy, cover and compare methods. 
methods that we know are evidence-informed. Right. But we wanted to show the teachers that you can still incorporate it, basically, to what you're already doing. Mm -hmm. And by incorporating this framework, you can optimize what you do. So we would meet with the students every day. We would target two skills at a time, and we Mm -hmm. start with the first two skills that we've pinpointed in our component composite analysis. Mm-hmm. We would do some casual untimed practice using typical classroom materials, notebooks, worksheets, paper and pencil type of thing. And what we did is we would give them a, a, a few minutes of practice and then we would do a 30 second timing. Okay. So that's where now we bring in the frequency building to a performance criterion practice, the frequency training, right? Mm-hmm. So we would do a bit of practice and then a 30 second timing. And then we would take the data, graph it, and depending on whether they met their goal of the day or not, we would either keep practicing mm-hmm. or we would stop and move on to the next skill, if that makes sense. Yes. So now we did 30 seconds, and that's another thing that I need to highlight. Um, people think that precision teaching is about doing one-minute timings. Okay, yeah. It's not. Mm-hmm. You tailor the timing to the individual you're working with, the skill you're practicing, so there are different considerations. Okay. For example, if you guys are working, let's say, with a six-year-old, mm-hmm. I would probably be expecting you to do between six-second timings, maybe 10-second timings, no more than 15-second timings. Because okay. when you have a six-year-old, that's a young kid. They yeah. get tired. Yeah. <laughs> you need to account for that, right? Yeah. So, I, and I say this because all the time I need to say to people, you know, PT is not about one-minute timings. We do 20-second mm-hmm. timings. We do 30-second timings. And we also do five-minute timings. Like, if okay. I ask you, for example, to practice, let's say, uh, uh, structuring paragraphs, mm-hmm. and I expect you to write short paragraphs, well, I can't give you a minute. Right. Right. That would be ridiculous. So, I need to give you more, right? Mm-hmm. So what we did is we did 30 seconds because we account for the fact that we've got kiddos with various disfluencies, so mm-hmm. skills in the repertoire that they cannot perform with natural pace. Mm-hmm. They are slow. They're awkward. Right. And we wanted to take into account that because of those disfluencies, they might get tired. Mm-hmm. So if they get tired during the timing, they're going to confound our data. Right, right. Because I'm going to think they're not fluent enough, but it's not that they are not fluent in the skill per se. It's that their endurance is the problem. Right. So they cannot cope. They cannot keep up with the duration of the timing. Which so makes we sense. Said, okay, we're, we're going to go to 30 seconds mm-hmm. to make sure that when we see, when we get the data, it's as accurate a picture as possible in terms of what is their current ability at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So we would do untimed practice, then a 30-second timing, untimed practice, and another 30-second timing, and so on, mm-hmm. until they reach the goal of the day, or they do five timings. Okay. Okay. Now, with typically developing individuals, so if you look at the precision teaching world, where you know we, we, a lot of precision teachers work a lot with in mainstream ed, with typically developing individuals, you will see that usually they go up to 10 timings. Okay. But we said, look, our kiddos, they, you know, they've got diagnosis, they've got disfluencies, they're not going to cope with, with that many timings, timings, yeah. Even if it's at 30 seconds. So we said, okay, we need to, we need to cut it in half to make mm-hmm. sure that it doesn't become aversive. Right. And this is because at the TZART Center here at the University of Kent, we focus heavily on 
the uh, values-based approaches in behavioral analysis and the ethics behind what we do. Right, so right. We always say, you know, we need to take into account what might be aversive to individuals and we need to account for that and try and be as sensitive as possible right. to you know, things that we might not think they are problematic for us as typically developing individuals, mm-hmm. but they might be for students in special ed. Right. So now in terms of, I, I said before that they, they would either do up to five timings or we would stop even earlier. So there were right. days that we would do one timing mm-hmm. and they would get their goal of the day straight away. So we would move on to practice the second skill. And once they finish the practice with that, that would be the end of it because we practice two skills at a time. Mm-hmm. And when they completed the whole practice with one of the skills, we would introduce the next one in the sequence we had created. Okay. So you see how all these six skills come together gradually. Yes. Mm-hmm. So you practice the first two out of the six. Once practice is completed, for example, on both or one of them, you introduce the third one, then the mm-hmm. fourth, then the fifth, and then you reach the primary skill, which was addition. Mm-hmm. The goals that we set, um, they were based on the performance criteria we had from the more fluent group, the weekly right. group, those four kiddos. And what we did is we would do at the beginning of the week two set criterion timings. Okay. So on, on a Monday, we would give them basically two cold probes. We would say to them, okay, let's see what you can do on this skill. So, for example, let's say we were practicing CNC numbers. Mm-hmm. It would be Monday. And I would say to them, okay, before we start any practice today, I'm going to give you two timings, 30 seconds each. Mm-hmm. I just want to take the data, see where we are after mm-hmm. the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. So we would do those two set criterion timings. And then we would calculate for the rest of the week, what the daily goal would be in terms of the frequency per minute. Mm-hmm. So, okay. for example, if you did, let's say, 20 and uh, on the first timing, 20 correct per mm-hmm. minute, and on the second timing you had 21 correct per minute, mm-hmm. then what I would do is I would calculate a trajectory so that on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, the daily goal is gradually gradually increased mm-hmm. above that best score that you had, that 21 correct per minute. Okay. So that on Tuesday, you would have to do a bit more than 21. Mm-hmm. On Wednesday, even more than that, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And that trajectory, which we call a minimum acceleration line, which is basically a trend line, right. a trend line that you would see on a graph, but we in precision teaching have the um, ability to quantify it. Mm-hmm. So we can calculate exactly how steep that trend line is. Okay. And we would set it at a minimum of a times 1.3 which means at least a 30% increase per week. Okay. And we would do that calculation. So at, on Monday, after the two set criterion timings, I would know what's the minimum expectation in terms of your performance for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Okay. And I would know that if you are on or above those expectations, you would have increased your performance by at least 30% or more. Right. If that makes sense. It does. So that's how we calculated the daily goal. So basically, they would do the two set criterion timings. And I would mm-hmm. say, that, okay, your goal today, for example, is 22 correct with no more than two incorrect. Okay. Okay, guys. All right. Now, let's do some untimed practice and then our first timing. So we would do the untimed practice, then our first timing. If they got their goal, obviously, you know, we would deliver points. We would congratulate them. They would take their data on a data set we have made for them. And then they would plot their data on mm-hmm. two different graphs. So after its timing, 
They will mm -hmm. use a graph, we call it timings graph, where basically you graph the data for each timing that you do. Okay. And what that does is it allows you to examine performance within the session. So I mm -hmm. can see how you're doing during the session. Mm -hmm. And this is where that dynamic and quick decision-making comes in. Because if, for example, I see that you've done three timings mm -hmm. and we're not getting anywhere, in clinical practice, you would make a change straight away. So right. you wouldn't wait for the day to finish because you can see that within the session, there's no improvement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're that quick in your decision-making. And that's how we produce those accelerations of learning and performance across time in precision teaching. Okay. So we have that timings graph and we mm -hmm. graph every timing. Mm -hmm. And then when the practice would finish on a certain skill, they would take the best score of the day and they would plot it on their daily graph. Okay. So now the daily graph would show you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so that you can evaluate your performance across days. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we would look at two different levels the data collection would be on two different levels. It would be within session, mm -hmm. timing one, timing two, timing one, and it would be across, across the days. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. With the best score of the day. As I said, we had a token economy and it was on a variable ratio of three or four, okay. uh, typically on a four. Um, and we made sure that the practice didn't last longer than their treatment as usual. So the, the, the lessons they would have with their teacher in the classroom. Mm -hmm. So our guys, the guys that got precision teaching, they didn't do, they didn't do any maths in the classroom. They okay. did everything with us. The other two groups, they would receive their classic, you know, typical maths practice mm -hmm. with their teacher in the classroom. And what we wanted is to make sure that we don't give them more practice in terms of duration of practice. Right. Because then we wouldn't be able to compare across the groups. Right. So we, we also made sure that that was in place as well. So that's what it looked like. They would come in on a Monday, two set criterion timings, set the goal for the rest of the week, mm -hmm. do some untimed practice followed by times, graph the data on the timings chart, keep practicing until they meet their goal of the day or do five timings tops, and then take the best score, pop it on the daily graph, mm -hmm. and move on to practicing the next skill. Right. We did two skills at a time, and when they completed practice on a certain skill, we would introduce the next one. Now, while we were doing that, the weekly group, mm -hmm. they would come in our classroom once a week and we would say to them, okay, guys, here is a worksheet and we would do a cold probe. We'd say to them, you know, do your best. Right. And we would do one timing, 30 seconds, just do your best. Mm -hmm. And we would assess all the skills once a week. So we'd mm -hmm. say, okay, let's do some CSA numbers, here write numbers, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't give them any feedback. We would give them some generic praise. Well done, guys. You know, thank you very much. Let's go outside and play for five minutes. But it mm -hmm. wouldn't be any feedback like these are your corrects, your incorrects, your right, you right. did well, you didn't do well, and so on. Because we wanted to just baseline across time, basically, how mm -hmm. are they doing. So that's what the study was all about. And when, obviously, the kiddos finished all practice with all the skills, mm -hmm. Then we allowed a two-week period of no practice. Okay. And then we assessed all the skills after two weeks of no practice again. Okay. So we got them in and said, okay, do you still remember how to do this? Let's see. Mm -hmm. We gave them the uh, relevant materials. And we also assessed the weekly group again, and we assessed the single group now. So these are the eight kiddos that had that variable ability. 
and mm-hmm. we couldn't group them together really. And we wanted to check, okay, you guys did a pre and post type of thing. Let's see, after all these months, mm-hmm. where are you now in terms of your ability with all the skills? Have you made any improvements with the eclectic model? Have you not made any improvements? What's mm-hmm. happened with your performance? Mm-hmm. And we assessed them again on all the skills. Um, and it was a you know first, last type of assessment or pre-post, you could call it. So that was the study. And the idea was that we wanted to see, can students that have intellectual and developmental disabilities, students that are in special ed, so mm-hmm. students who you know, were deemed that they wouldn't be able to cope in mainstream ed, can they still engage in that academic practice, in that academic training, that rigorous demanding training, because we're talking about a, an average duration of 47 minutes of practice, right? Right, right, right. And they were kiddos that were not the creme de la creme in mm-hmm. their school. They were not considered the most fluent performers, right? Mm-hmm. And we wanted to see, okay, can they do it, first of all? Can they do all this frequency training? Can they graph their data, take their data? Mm-hmm. Do they, you know, can if we teach them to evaluate the performance, can they do that? Mm-hmm. So that's another thing we did. We taught them to, to read their data on the graphs. That's so awesome. what I would say to them, I would I would give them what we call, you know, an echoic to tact. So mm-hmm. I would say, okay, are your, originally I introduced it very simply and I said, are your data points going up or down? Mm-hmm. And they're going up. Yes, that's great. That's what we want to see. They're going up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I started introducing and said, okay, are your data ascending? Oh, okay. And they were like, what? Are your data going up? Are they ascending? <laughs> yeah. So I started, you know, and then eventually I would say to them, okay, how did you do today? And they would say to me, I trained them to say to me, uh, my data are ascending, which is really good. They are not very variable, which is also really good. And it seems that I'm getting closer to my performance criteria. That's amazing. And we're talking about kiddos that are in special ed, right? That's amazing. And it's because I gave them that contact. I was like gradually shaping up mm-hmm. the repertoire. I gave right. them the ability to be able to tack their performance on the graph. Mm-hmm. And um, they did it. They, you know, the, the question was, can they do it and will they benefit? And yes, they did it. They enjoyed mm-hmm. it and they benefited. So when we looked at the data, we saw that all, all the students that received precision teaching and I'll say it again, these students were all performing lower than the weekly group when we did the right. Mm-hmm. So they either equaled or outperformed the weekly group, which was the, wow. first, the, four, the, the students that were the best out of the 16 students. Wow, that's amazing. Now, another interesting finding was that their accelerations mm-hmm. were very steep in some cases. And what we call acceleration in precision teaching is basically... Um, quantifying the trend, in other words, the speed of behavior change across time. So how quickly are you improving your performance, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, learning. Because in precision teaching, you know, when people say to me, what's the difference between performance and learning? I say to them, performance is what you can do at this point in time. Right. So I give you a test right now. What can you do? Let me see. What's mm-hmm. your performance? Your learning is how quickly are you changing your performance across time? So, for example, how quickly are you improving or worsening? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense. So, in PTE, we've got what we call uh, metrics. 
So we've got the analytics in ABA, mainstream ABA, mm-hmm. right? mm-hmm. level, trend, variability, immediacy of effect, and so on. Mm-hmm. But in PT, we actually quantify all these. So, for example, instead of saying to you, oh, the trend is moderately, moderately ascending or the trend is, uh, you know, uh, very steep, mm-hmm. I will actually give you a number. And I will okay. say to you, okay, look, the acceleration, in other words, the trend, mm-hmm. is uh, times 2.5. Which means, for example, you've got a hundred and fifty percent increase per week. In right, your right, right. Mm-hmm. So we can quantify that. Mm-hmm. So what we found with our guys is that their ability to learn, in other words, their acceleration, mm-hmm. in many cases, was higher than we expected. Nice. So we had set a minimum of a times one point three. In other words, a minimum of a thirty percent improvement per week. Okay. But looking, for example, at our first participant, Olaf, there yes. were cases, cases that he would have at times 1.68, which means a 68% improvement per week. Mm-hmm. Looking at our second participant, Andy, mm-hmm. there were cases where he had a times 5.78, which means 478% improvement per week. Wow, that's amazing. Looking at Tom, he had mm-hmm. a times 2.63 which is 163% improvement per week. Mm-hmm. It's a change, right? And look right, at right. our last participant, which was a girl, Una, she also was at the times 2.38. So there were times, there were weeks that they mm-hmm. would improve, they would more than double their performance. Right. So their potential to learn is there. Mm-hmm. That's our main findings. Wow. That's like, so with your findings, what do you, what should our listeners kind of take away? Because, um, I mean, the findings are amazing that they improved that much throughout the precision teaching process. So what should our learners take away from the findings that you guys uh, collected? First of all, we need to give our students opportunities to perform to their natural pace. So mm-hmm. we need to remember the stages of learning, as we call them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in ABA, mainstream ABA, we focus a lot on accuracy. We focus a lot on acquisition. So mm-hmm. it's a skill. And that is very important. That's the first stage of learning, right? You come right. in and you say, look, Thanos, I don't know anything about this. Mm-hmm. I say, okay, mate, I'll teach you. Mm-hmm. So that's the acquisition stage. That's where I build the accuracy. But right. then we need to move to the fluency stage. So I need to now free the operant. I need to give you the ability to perform to higher frequencies. I need to allow you to speed, but again, not in a format like a race. Mm -hmm, I need to to allow you to perform to your natural pace. Right. So one of the findings is that these kiddos did have a natural pace. Mm -hmm. Because I had, for example, um, on the primary dependent variable, which was addition, mm-hmm. when, for example, our second participant, Andy, started, he had, on uh, uh, average, two correct digits per minute. Okay. Okay? So mm-hmm. clearly, he didn't know addition. Mm-hmm. At the end of the study, his average was about 60 per minute. Mm. So wow. he went from two per minute to 60 per minute. That's amazing. So the ability of students in special ed that have diagnosis mm-hmm. to perform to higher frequencies seem there. Right. And I say it seems to be there because obviously, you know, this is one study. 
right, right. One right. study is only one study. We right. need a corpus of literature to be able to talk about things uh, in confidence. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the final frequencies that we report at the paper, we've got kiddos that perform at above 40 per minute, 45, mm-hmm. 50 per minute. So one of the things that we need to understand in ABA is that if I only give you discrete trials, I'm limiting your ability. Mm. Because you can't possibly do, for example, 40 discrete trials in 30 seconds. Right, right. It's just not possible. It's not humanly possible. You can't deliver that quickly. Mm-hmm. So you need to find ways that once your kiddos are on are accurate, so you say, mm-hmm. okay, look, I've got 90%, 100% across two consecutive sessions, whatever your criterion is. Mm-hmm. But they did, for example, 10 trials or 20 trials. Mm-hmm. All right. I need to give them the opportunity to go above the 20. So let right. them perform now to their natural ability, to their natural ceiling. Mm-hmm. So that's one finding. The other finding is that, as I said, the, the, the potential to learn seems to be very strong in these uh, students, which right. means that we need to be careful about how demanding we are in terms mm-hmm. of behavior change across time. Okay. And what I mean by that is that we need to have high expectations. Mm-hmm. So if we're seeing that there is a, you know, a slowly ascending trend on our graph and, you know, they are very, very gradually improving on a skill, mm-hmm. we need to evaluate and think, okay, is this because maybe the skill is really complex and it's the nature of the skill that you wouldn't be able to develop it a lot quicker, which can, mm-hmm. Be, mm-hmm. can be the case? Or is it that instruction has not optimized the student's ability? Mm, that's good. That's, that's so maybe good. we need to change something here mm-hmm. to produce steeper learning rates, steeper accelerations. And that's one of the things that you see all the big precision teachers historically focus on. Ogden mm-hmm. Lindsley, the founder of PT, he would say, go for steep accelerations, produce high learning rates, get right. quickly improve. Ken Johnson, who you know, founded Morningside Academy, he always says, I want to see steep accelerations on the charts. I right. want to see quick growth because we have, as species, the ability to learn quickly. Right. We are quick. And, you know, having a disability shouldn't necessarily mean that we drop our expectations to the extent that we have very low acceleration values. Mm-hmm. And we say, oh, that's fine. doesn't matter. No. Right. So you guys, you know, be very demanding. Not only of your students, obviously, but mm-hmm. of your own instructional design. Right, right. So how do you design your instruction to produce optimized outcomes in your classrooms or in your clinics or in mm-hmm. your home programs? So that's another finding. Um, a third finding was that when you make the practice relevant to those kiddos, mm-hmm. they can practice. Like right. they can want. Our guys did 62 sessions, right? Mm-hmm. And what they did is, uh, on average, 62. And I will explain why on average in a moment. Okay. So they had an average of 62 sessions, and an average duration of practice was 47 minutes. Mm. Now, I want, you to, I want you to, like, visualize this for a sec. We are talking about kiddos that, you know, obviously they are not on the lower end of ability, Mm-hmm. Right? They can mm-hmm. do, for example, maths. They can pick up a pencil. Yeah, fair enough, right? Right. But they are kiddos that were considered to be 
uh, you know, unable to cope in mainstream ed. Mm-hmm. So they are not on the same level of a typically developing kiddo. And still, they could do about 50 minutes of practice every day, maths. Right. But why could they do that? It's because of the component composite analysis, first of all. Mm-hmm. It's because we broke down the skills to simpler, more basic skills. Mm-hmm. And we taught them in, you know, a, a sequence of gradually increasing difficulty and complexity. Mm-hmm. So first I asked them, for example, to just discriminate numbers from symbols, which was super easy. Right, right. But, but they improved, which suggests to me that actually there was room there for them to become even better at it. Mm-hmm. Then I asked them to just see and say numbers. Then I asked them to just hear and write numbers. Mm-hmm. And then I asked them, for example, to count. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because we did that, and I should say that this was a project that I did, obviously, I should have said that in the beginning. We did this with Kira Padden, Mecca Chiesa, Costas Rizos, and Peter Langdon. It wasn't just me, right? We right. Group. <laughs> and I should, you know, shout out to my uh, colleagues and uh, yes. um, supervisors and so on. Uh, so w- when, when we would get them in the classroom, you would see that they would be happy to do this because it was achievable. Right, right. And it was achievable because we were working from an instructional design point of view, we had the proper sequence. Mm-hmm. So we didn't go straight in with a complex skill. We focused first on the prereqs. Right, right. But we didn't just train them to accuracy. Mm-hmm. We didn't just focus on the acquisition stage of learning. We trained them to fluency. So right. by the time that they reached the more complex skill, mm-hmm. it was now easy. Yeah, yeah. Because now they could quickly figure out what numbers they're looking at. Mm-hmm. They count. Mm-hmm. They could do all these things, you know, fluently. So now just doing the addition was just a matter of practice now. So, the, you know, the, the, the different operands started coming together. Right. You see what I'm trying to say here? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's what we say, uh, you know, um, what I like to say about mod- modern ABA, that it should be nonlinear. Mm-hmm. So when we're thinking of developing repertoires, we should be thinking about clusters, Mm. You know, web of skills. Right, right. We should not be thinking of chains. It's not a chain. It's not one link after the other. Mm-hmm. Different webs that interlock with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And we need to pinpoint all the different skills and bring them together. And by doing that, it becomes so achievable that then you get kiddos in special ed that they practice nonstop for 50 minutes, for example. They do maths nonstop 50 minutes. Right. And right. it was nonstop. It was mm-hmm. untimed practice, time practice, data collection, graphing evaluation, and again, untimed practice. Okay. So they would, they would not stop. That was demanding, right? Right. And they could do it. And another thing that we do in PT is that we slice the curriculum. So if, for example, I want to teach you to count from 0 to 20, mm-hmm. I'm going to first start by teaching you to count from 0 to 10. Mm-hmm. 10 to 20, and then I'm going to bring everything together and do zero to, zero to 20. Right. And we call that slicing. So basically, you know, you cut the targets in mm-hmm. smaller chunks to make it more achievable. And then you bring all your targets together and you do a cumulative slice or a review slice, you can call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. What you want. And you could do the same with other skills. So you could, for example, say, okay, I want to teach 50 tacts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, maybe I do five sets of 10 tacts. Right. Like, you know, I teach set one, then set two. Maybe then I do a cumulative slice where I teach set one and two together. Mm-hmm. Then I introduce set three, set four, and again. And eventually, I've trained all 50. 
targets, but I've done it in a way that is more achievable for, for my students. Which makes perfect sense. So, oh, go ahead. <laughs> um, so what were some of the limitations of this study that you found? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, first of all, as I'll say it again, one study is just one study. Right, right. right. Uh, and these kiddos were kiddos that could go in and do abstract maths. Mm-hmm. So kiddos that understood, for example, you know, oh, seeing a symbol that we call five mm-hmm. means five of something, right? Right. So obviously, if it were, if anyone was to do it with a different population in terms of different ability, mm-hmm. they would need to make some changes to this, right? Mm-hmm. It wouldn't necessarily apply to all our kiddos, obviously. And I, I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. I don't think, you know, any ABA professional would think that it's a blanket statement, you know, oh, you, right. can, you can do this type of practice with everybody. But with, with the relevant adaptations, you could do it with everybody mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, making it relevant to them. Now, in terms of limitations for our study, first of all, we didn't randomize the groups. Right, right. So that, that, that we, we, we appreciate that we've introduced bias there. Mm-hmm. But the reason was that we wanted to show the teachers that the students that you consider to be your best, mm-hmm. we can get students that you don't think they're your best students to be as good or even better. Even better, right. So we wanted to make it hard for ourselves. And that's why we pitted moderate ability students mm-hmm. against more fluent students. Right. And we were, you know, um, confirmed in a way by our results. Right. So one limitation is the lack of randomization. Another limitation is that the uh, prerequisite skills, we practiced them using quasi-experimental AB design. And the reason we did that is because we, we, we had so many skills to train mm-hmm. that we needed to make sure that we go through them as quickly as possible so that we can reach our primary dependent variable, which was addition facts. Right. Now, for addition, obviously, we had a multiple baseline across participants design, so we did have a robust experimental design in place. Mm-hmm. But from a research point of view, if I could have multiple baseline designs for all the skills, uh, that would be, you know, perfect. Right, right. But we had those considerations that we needed to also uh, think of. So that's another limitation. Uh, finally, I would say that the final limitation is that we didn't assess for fluency the precision teaching way. So in the precision teaching world, there is this thing that has different acronyms. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever uh, seen them or not. You might have seen them as REAPS, so R-E-A-P-S, mm-hmm. RESA, MESSAGE, MESA. We've got different acronyms. Clearly, mm-hmm. we like changing things around uh, in, in the PT world. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we can make up our minds sometimes. Um, it's okay. <laughs> so basically... What these are, are what we call byproducts of fluency, mm-hmm. because fluency, if you think about it experimentally, we're not really sure whether fluency is actually a thing per se. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at all the literature that compares DTT versus fluency training and so on, you've got a lot of mixed results there. Right. So to a certain extent, it's, it's a concept that's more idealistic rather mm-hmm. than, you know, hardcore experimental. Mm-hmm. But what is interesting about fluency is that in the precision teaching literature and in the you know, early research on PT, they found that when you get to higher frequencies of performance, 
you tend to show what we call the byproducts of fluency. Mm -hmm. So your behavior, for example, maintains better across time mm -hmm. when you don't practice the skill. Okay. So that's what we call maintenance, or you might see it referred to as retention. Mm -hmm. Then you've got what we call endurance. So the ability to perform for longer periods of time without dropping your accuracy. Mm -hmm. So I will ask you to do math facts for 30 seconds or two minutes, and you're mm -hmm. going to be equally accurate and uh, quick with it. Okay. Then we've got stability, which is the ability to not be distracted while you're performing. Mm -hmm. So you are doing maths, and I'm talking to someone next to you, but you're still doing your maths. You're not right. being distracted. And that's because you can perform in higher frequencies. So you have that byproduct. Right. Then we've got what we call application. Now, this is a tricky one because there is a disagreement in the literature. Some people refer to it and they mean generalization. Okay. Other people refer to it and they mean combining skills that you've mastered mm -hmm. to perform a more complex skill. Okay. So there is a slight um, inconsistency in the literature in terms of that. And then you've got what um, people call adaption or generativity. Mm -hmm. So recombining repertoires under novel situation and creating new repertoires without direct training. Right. Okay. So... Optimally, from a PT point of view, you should be assessing all these byproducts at the end of this. Mm -hmm. So you should be assessing for maintenance, endurance, stability, application, adduction, and so on. Mm -hmm. Now, we didn't do that. Okay. And we didn't do that simply because we ran out of time. Mm. In the sense that we reached a point where we needed to say, okay, we need to finish the study mm -hmm. because we need to move on. So we've demonstrated improvement. We've demonstrated maintenance. But again, it was only one datum point. It was one probe after two weeks. Mm -hmm. So that's another limitation. Optimally, we would have at least three, maybe five. Okay. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a perfect world, if I could go back in time and if I had a bit more time, we would have gotten in there and we would have assessed all the other components of all those uh, byproducts of fluency. Okay. Now, having said that, I'm not convinced about them personally as a researcher. Mm -hmm. I appreciate the early studies. I appreciate the clinical experience that we have in PT. Mm -hmm. But from a research pers perspective, these byproducts of fluency have not necessarily been rigorously demonstrated, at least not in the modern literature. Okay. So take it with a pinch of salt. I still mm -hmm. think there is value in assessing all these different um, byproducts. Mm -hmm. But... Personally, I don't think we know everything there is to know about it yet. Right, right. So there's, you know, room for more research around the RIPS, RESA, MESA, whatever acronym you want to use. Gotcha, gotcha. So these were some of the uh, limitations uh, of the study. So I'm really interested now in more learning more about precision teaching and, and using it to... Um, kind of help the kiddos that I work with to acquire more skills and acquire those more complex uh, skills that they need to learn, you know, throughout just teaching. Um, so where do you, would you say for a BCBA who's not, um, or a teacher who's not really uh, familiar with precision teaching, where should they start to look? So there, there, um, the community, the precision teaching community is very active. And mm -hmm. that's one of the things I really like. And they're very welcoming as well. Excellent. 
And I think one of the reasons uh, behind that is because PT is very underappreciated in mm -hmm. ABA. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about it, it's probably one of the most consistent subfields of behavioral analysis in terms of Skinner's work. Okay. Like Skinner used rate of responding, mm -hmm. what we call, you know, count per minute, count mm -hmm. per unit of time. He used the standard visual display. The mm -hmm. cumulative recorder produced cumulative records and, the, you know, they were standard visual displays. Mm -hmm. The same goes with the standard acceleration chart. So the community is very welcoming of, you know, people who might be interested in this. So you can always check out the Facebook group of the Standard Acceleration Society. Okay. And they're lovely people. They are always very keen to help. Uh, there are uh, more and more books coming out uh, uh, about PT. Mm -hmm. Um, we've got, for example, a lovely textbook uh, that you could, in a way, is the Cooper et al. book of precision. Okay. And, you know, it's it's our Bible, in a way. At least, I, you know, I'm talking about myself here, but it's it's definitely my Bible. And I'm talking about the precision teaching book by mm -hmm. Kubina and Juric. Okay. Um, and I know that uh, Rick Kubina is working on a second edition and, you know, good things are coming that way. Excellent. Um, Rick Kubina has also uh, written a second textbook about PT, and I think mm -hmm. he, he, the name is the Precision Teaching Manual. Okay. So that's another really good um, uh, book uh, worth checking out. There is obviously the Ken Johnson uh, books, um, and it's Ken Johnson with Elizabeth Street. So there is a Precision Teaching and RTI um, mm -hmm. Or I think the title is something like that, Precision Teaching and Response to Intervention, or something along those lines. And I okay. think people can easily find it on Amazon. There is also the Morningside Model of Generative Instruction book. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, Ken Johnson and his team are preparing a new edition, and apparently it's going to be a huge you know, brick uh, of PT and instructional design uh, goodies in there. So okay. um, shout out to that. There is also a book that came out and it was a collaborative project. Uh, there were a few precision teachers involved. Malcolm Neely, uh, Ken Johnson was involved. Um, Abigail Kalkin was involved and other people, other good precision teachers mm -hmm. were involved. And the book is called uh, Precision Teaching, a Science of Education. Okay. Again, I, I don't remember exactly the title, but it's something like that. Okay. Uh, a Science of Education, Precision Teaching or something like that. Uh, so there are there are these books out there. Mm -hmm. uh, there is the Standard Acceleration Society website, and you can have access to the uh, Precision Teaching uh, Journal because there used to be the Journal of Precision Teaching and Acceleration, mm -hmm. and they have the archive of uh, all the issues, uh, and you could also check that uh, out. Okay. Um, and then in terms of training, you could uh, obviously uh, go to the Morningside Teachers Academy. Uh, right. You do that summer training. Um, and it's about a month of training, typically, I think, end of July until the end of August. Okay. Um, there is There are some online courses available, uh, I think, from Central Reach. Okay. That were developed by Rick Kubina and Amy Evans. There is also... Um, Kerry Milico, I think, has some uh, online training uh, in her website. I think it's the Precision Teaching Learning Center. Okay. And I think there are some uh, online uh, training that you could access there as well. Um, I know that Fit Learning, uh, shout out to the lovely Fit Learning people, the, you know, Kimberly Burns, Nick Burns, and so on. 
And I think they also do a lot of training on uh, precision teaching. Mm-hmm. So there are there are you know there are ways to get trained in this. And as I said, if if you if you approach this community, you're not only going to learn about using the standard relation chart. Mm-hmm. Going to learn about good instructional design, right. curricula, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So we are embedding as a community good practice from the broader area of education and behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think is really powerful. And that's why I think it's really underappreciated. Right, right. So before we wrap up, I have to ask you, um, and I think I uh, kind of told you I was going to ask you this before. (laughs) Um, So given what you know, given your your experience in the field, what do you feel is missing in ABA right now? What do you feel is is lacking for our field, and how do you think we could combat it? I thought hard about this, to be honest, uh, and I'll tell you why. It's because sometimes I feel it's a bit unfair mm-hmm. to say, you know, you know, to give an overall statement about the field in the sense that I always remind myself that you know ABA is not the same everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like That's my, true. My ABA is not necessarily the same as other people's ABA, right? Mm-hmm. But I would say that the first thing that comes to mind is humility. Mm, that's good. I think we need to have professional humility. And I think this um, links to diff- various different things that we do as behavior analysts. For mm-hmm. example, the way we like value, how we value or even talk about other literature. Right? Mm-hmm. non-ABA literature. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we need to realize that there are cases where we and people outside ABA talk about the same things, mm-hmm. but in different terminology. Obviously, they might come from a more mentalistic approach, but that right. doesn't mean that their work doesn't have value. Mm-hmm. It just means that we need to be fluent in behavioralizing what we're mm-hmm. reading. Right. So in terms of humility, that's one thing. The other thing is that generally, I think we've got to to do more work that is interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know everything. And I think sometimes you see, you know, the way we present ourselves as behavior analysts and you think, oh, we should be a bit more humble. Yeah, yeah. And we should also think about the harm that's been done in the mm-hmm. name of behavior modification, not so much behavior analysis in the modern sense. Right. But we need to appreciate that there are people out there who are against ABA. That is true. We need to respect why they're against ABA. Mm-hmm. Now, there are cases, don't get me wrong, that, you know, they just misinformed. So right. I have some people who will say, you know, oh, ABA was created by Lovas and he created gay conversion therapy. Right. right. And I'm like, you know, there are so many inaccurate statements that I don't know where to begin. Right. But that doesn't mean that there has not been harm done mm-hmm. in the name of behavior science, behavior modification, or even behavior analysis. Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't mean that there is still not bad practice out there. That's true. So we need to have the humility. When people say to us, you know what, I've received behavior analytic services and I was harmed, we need to learn to listen and not be defensive. Mm -hmm. And one way I cope with it personally is that when I hear these stories, I always remind myself that it, it, it's true, it mm-hmm. happens, and mm-hmm. it's not what I'm advocating for. Right. 
So, you know, I'm advocating personally, and at the Tizard Center, we advocate for values-based, ethical, empowering approaches mm-hmm. to behavior analysis, focusing you know, on people's quality of life, focusing on people, putting people first. Right respecting their choice, their decision, their aspirations, and so on. So when people talk to me about getting harmed by ABA professionals, the first Mm -hmm. thing I remind myself is that doesn't mean it applies to my work or our work as a center. Right. And I say this because I appreciate that sometimes we might get defensive because we think, oh, if they think that ABA is abused, that means that they think we are abusive. Well, I don't see that. Mm -hmm. It's the same with doctors. You can have a really good doctor and you can have a bad doctor. That doesn't mean that the science of medicine is problematic or that, you know, other doctors that are really good should be defending everything there is to defend about their field because there are bad things in there as well, right? Right, right. So that's one thing. The other thing is confidence. Mm -hmm. Confidence to venture outside our comfort zone. Mm. And that's something that I'm trying personally to do as a BCBA. And that's why um, I'm working closely with colleagues from the Department of Cognitive Neuroscience. Okay. And what we do is we are uh, combining forces. So I, I'm bringing the behavior analytic precision teaching approach and right. they bring what they know from their field. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to establish a new uh, strand of research around this. We mm-hmm. just got published um, in um, a lovely cognitive behavioral journal Uh, And it's an open access document. And what we looked at is electrical brain stimulation. And we use SAFMEDS to make some comparisons. So we used a a specific type of flashcards Mm -hmm. that you would do in precision teaching. And it stands for say all fast a minute every day shuffle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we use SAFMEDS, but we we had typically developing individuals and they had an alternating treatments design where they would receive electrical brain stimulation or a placebo condition. Okay. to see what is going to happen and so on. So we need to be confident to go and work with people who might have an expertise on a certain area and Mm -hmm. bring our behavioral analytic background and combine forces and see what what we produce. Right, right. Because we always say, oh, you know, behavioral analysis is inductive in the way we do research. Well, it should be inductive in the way we also approach areas that we're not familiar with. That's true. We shouldn't be only limited to analysis in, you know, the field of disability or mainstream education. Mm-hmm. There are lovely people out there nowadays that do work in feeding disorders. There are mm-hmm. people who work, you know, um, with sports, um, people who do neuroscience and behavior analysis, gerontology, you know. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we should be more confident to approach other people and say, hey, you know, for example, you know, about cognitive neuro. Mm-hmm. I know about behavioral, behavioral science. Mm-hmm. What will happen if we combine forces? Let's see. Right, right. And like you said, I think it helps to keep us from continuing to be pigeonholed to being just the the field that does autism or the field that does intellectual disabilities or, like you said, the field that just does classroom behavior management. Like, we can do so much more if we were to reach across the aisle and say, hey, let's bring our expertise together and see what we can develop or see what we can can find or what findings that we um, come up with through our collaboration. So that makes, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> I agree. Glad to hear that. 
So before we get out of here, are there any other um, any other takeaways that you have for the audience or anything else that you think is, is pertinent to precision teaching or just the field of ABA in general? Well, in terms of precision teaching, I would say try it out. Find, right. more, find, find more about it because you will realize that the more you find out about precision teaching, the more you will realize that actually it's a very powerful system mm-hmm. and it can actually be a game changer. It can be a game changer, especially if you're coming from the world of, you know, discrete trial and natural environment training. Mm-hmm. And so on. If you bring that decision making, that sensitive progress monitoring, if you bring the, the, you know, the instructional design principles that are not necessarily precision teaching per se, but you will see them usually combined in precision teaching approaches. Mm-hmm. So if we start learning more about these things, we're going to be really good as behavior analysts. Right, right. Because at the end of the day, behavior analysis is, uh, you know, all about developing repertoires. So mm-hmm. you, if I say it a bit simplistically, if you think about it, we're really good teachers. That's what right, we are. Right, right. Because we, we're really good at developing skills. Mm-hmm. That's true. So it's just a prompt to people to not treat behavior, not treat precision teaching as the fluency stuff, because it's a lot more than that. Right. It's not just about fluency. It's not just about, you know, oh, giving them free run training opportunities. No, it's it's a lot more than that. And if you if you if you delve into the literature and you start learning a bit more about it, I think you're gonna find that there is a lot of things there for you to benefit from and improve your practice. Awesome. Awesome. So for our audience, just uh, if you did not catch it in the very beginning, the study that we have been talking about that is absolutely amazing is a precision teaching framework for improving mathematical skills of students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. If you want to reach out to Thanos, feel free to, well, do you want to give your email address for the audience to reach out to you if they have any questions? Yeah, of course. Uh, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. If you just put Thanos Vostanis, you'll find me there. I'm on Twitter at uh, ThanosGR. Uh, and my email is Thanos.Vostanis at Outlook.com. Awesome. So, so, free to out. yeah, so feel free, like you said, to reach out to him if you have any questions about precision teaching, if you have any more questions about the study itself, or if you just want to get to know this author a lot better, he is absolutely amazing, awesome, and he has a wealth of knowledge that I would say just pick his brain, if you will. Um, he's very knowledgeable in all that he does. So um, if there's nothing else they knows, I thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. It was absolutely a pleasure talking to you, and I feel so much more uh, confident that I can go and um, not do precision teaching yet, <laughs> but at least I feel like I have a a framework to to study. I have something to um, go and look into more because it's 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 interesting. It's really um, it's just interesting to to know to find out about to learn more about. So I'm definitely going to do that. 
And for our audience, make sure that you like, subscribe and share this podcast. Look for us on Instagram and Facebook at life with ABA, uh, life with ABA or look at our website at lifewithbehavioranalysis.com. And we'll see you on our next podcast recording. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Live with Behavior Analysis podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Also, make sure you check out our website for more content. See you next time. Bye.